week we discuss censorship and women in horror for the release of the film Censor. His critic, Clarice Lochry. I think what's so fascinating about Censor is that it's just a hundred different layers and I've watched it twice now coming away with, with slightly different interpretations of it. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. And this week, we're talking about the fascinating new film, Censor, in an episode in partnership with Vertigo releasing. Censor delves into the distressed mind of Enid, a buttoned-up film censor working amid the moral panic of the 1980s video nasties craze. Hardened to the horror, she spends her working day watching the most disturbing scenes committed to celluloid. Until one film dredges up repressed memories of a disturbing episode in her own past... What follows is an immersive, obsessive quest where the boundaries of Enid's reality become nightmarishly blurred. I was wondering if you had anything else than this actress. What's going to happen to her? That's top secret. People think that I create horror. Horror is already out there in all of us. Later in the show, I'll be talking to the film's director, Prano Bailey-Bond, and the star, Neve Alga. First up, two brilliant female critics and horror specialists, Leila Latif and Clarice Lochry. Well, welcome to you both, and thank you for joining Girls on Film to talk about Censor. Leila, we asked had you on our Promising Young Woman episode, number 72. What have you been up to since then, work-wise? God, just covering the world of movies across the assortment of places that I do. I've started, I'm now a contributor to the AV Club, still plugging away at Little White Lies and Total Film as well. And I've been doing a lot of uh, fun stuff with the, with the BFI recently about African cinema and Arab cinema and, you know, uh, Muslim representation of women in films and like all that sort of geeky stuff that I love. And we love that too. Excellent. Clarice? Welcome back. Uh, you were on episode 25, I think. It's been a while. How have you been? <laughs> Big question. <laughs> <laughs> great, thank you. I have my own podcast now, inspired by all the great podcasts like yours that I've guested on. <laughs> uh, it's called Fade to Black and I do it with Hannah Flint and Amon Woman. And we just get to chat about movies every week, which is such a pleasure because, you know, as with this podcast, the nicest thing about it is to to share ideas and to, to argue and to contrast. And it's really nice to be able to do that. And I just, I write reviews as always. I'm doing that. As <laughs> That's always. That's interesting though. <laughs> well, we, we love your reviews, which is obviously why we've asked you both on today. And I think Censor is such an interesting film to discuss. And Leila, I want to start with you because you wrote an interesting post about the video nasty phenomenon. Um, for those listeners who may not be as familiar with it um, as, you know, older people like myself, um, can you explain a bit more about that to put this film in context? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm uh, 35, so I was around for kind of the second wave of the video nasty ph uh, phenomenon, which was sort of around the Bulger murders and Child's Play 3 and stuff. So it was, it was actually an opportunity to really kind of dive into this history that I wasn't massively aware of. But essentially what happened was the... 
BBFC would rate films as they came in for their UK cinema releases. But when the video rental industry took off, the market became flooded by all of these films that hadn't gotten BBFC approval. And a lot of kind of very cheap, schlocky Italian horror films and, uh, you know, American horror films were suddenly available at all of the corner shops that were renting movies. I mean, I don't know if you guys, we didn't even have a proper video rental place for growing up. It was literally just in the newsagent. And you could kind of behind you at that time look up and kind of get the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, um, or you know, the witch that came from the sea. So obviously the BBFC weren't happy about this. And there was just this giant moral panic that started where everybody became you know, convinced that these horror films were responsible for like a real degrading of society and inspiring people to murder and, you know, that everything was going to collapse if we allowed our kind of precious young people to get their hands on these uh, salacious films. So, yeah, that's very much um, the world that Censor's talking about. Nicely set up. And Clarice, tell me, how do you think, Prana, the director who we've been speaking to on the pod today, how do you think she uses that very specific setting, that very specific time to create such a fascinating film. I think it's interesting for me because I'm American, so the the phenomenon of the video narratives kind of pranced me by. But obviously in America, we had the satanic panic, <laughs> which is its own thing. And there's such an interesting psychology to it. And there's such an, a fascinating way that, that people project their fears onto others, onto simple explanations, onto uh, imaginative fantasies. And I think that's at the very core of censor is is the idea of of what do we do with the things that we don't want to face? And so she she uses this this sort of like very localized phenomenon of the video nasties and the sort of all the political aspects of it as tapestry to explore something I think far wider. And that's what I love in a horror movie. It's it's something very, very specific and, and localized to basically try and explain how the human brain works. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, ain't it? I'm cutting it. Butchery, sadism, murder. A wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. Confusing fiction with reality. It's really psychological horror, isn't it? And I agree, that's one of the things I loved about it. It's psychological, it's sociological. It's very relevant to now as well. Leila, let me ask you, what were the highlights of this film for you, perhaps from a feminist perspective? For me, I kind of, as a huge horror fan myself, I did really appreciate that the journey was quite unexpected for, I don't want to give too much away, but for Enid's character, where rather than kind of horror being a corrupting force, she kind of finds like a strange comfort with it and like a way to kind of get through her trauma of the terrible things that she's been through and like you know as a horror fan myself I think that really spoke to my experience kind of watching these films that like sometimes they do actually help you to kind of process the more difficult things in life. Clis, would you like to speak to that? Yeah. I, I like how it, it acknowledges that and it also complicates it at the same time. I think what's so fascinating about Sensor is that it's just a hundred different layers and I've watched it twice now coming away with, with slightly different interpretations of it. And so, yeah, I think it, it does that. And it also, it, uh, it sort of acknowledges the, the weird irony that as female horror fans, like, we're watching like very violent stuff often against women. And it's like, right, how do how do we process that? Because there is this odd element of disassociation that you just sort of you just have to separate yourself. Uh, otherwise, like you can't really be the thing, a fan, the fan of the thing that you're a fan of. And 
I like that Sensa doesn't really come at it with this this one singular message. Leila, what messages did you get from this? Again, without spoilers, I think there are a lot of takeaways here, as Clarice was saying. That's so interesting because it's like a little bit like Clarice was saying with the satanic panic or with the video nasty phenomenon, moral panic, however you want to describe it. But like there were real problems happening in society at a time and we made one up like <laughs> like rather than dealing with what was actually there. And I think that sort of just kind of spoke to me. Like, I, I mean, I, I find that as something that we do as kind of larger groups, absolutely fascinating. But I also kind of, I think it kind of reflected in our in our main character Enid in quite an interesting way about like this idea of putting on a lot of artifice and focusing on something fake so you don't have to focus on what your real problems are. And yeah, I, I saw it twice as well. And I actually, the first time I saw it was in Sundance a few months ago. And I was like, oh yeah, that was good. That was fine, whatever. But then after I kind of went in and did all my research about the video nasty period and I watched it again, I I was like, oh my God, there's a whole extra film here that I didn't see. And like now I'm it's in a kind of love category for me. It's definitely one that rewards repeat viewing. And she says having watched it once, but but as soon as I watched it, I just thought, oh God, yeah. And because you're you're just being so gripped by the actual story. I know that there are so many layers to unpack when you revisit it. Clarice, is there anything that when you came back to it that really struck you? Well. Again, don't want to spoil anything. It's tough, <laughs> it's isn't it? It's really tough. <laughs> but censor is what I would call the cinematic equivalent of the the black and blue gold white dress, <laughs> because there are two absolutely distinct ways of reading the film and specifically Enid's character. And I went in the first viewing so sure that it was one thing. And it's all to do with the memory that she's repressing. What exactly is she scared of remembering? I was so sure (laughs) of what it was. And then I went to, I spoke to my friend and she had the opposite interpretation. And we were going back and forth for like 15 minutes going, but this, but this, but this. And then watching it a second time, really realizing Oh, like Prano Bailey Bond is so clever because she has put those two parallel readings into the film and it's there, it's concrete, and it's just about what the viewer wants to take away from it. Yeah, I mean, I always love that when you come away from a film and you're just like, that was a really good example of that type of film and a commentary on the entire genre in which it exists. (laughs) 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 Doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, and I, I keep changing my mind about what it has to say about video nasties and moral panics and repressed memories, because I think it really gives you the space to read into it what you want to read into it. Leila, are there any other films that you would compare this to for our listeners who are coming in cold? Obviously, it's a very original piece of work, but any points of comparison? I think it actually isn't a huge uh, in terms of the journey that you know, it goes on. It's not a miles away from what happens in St. Maud like that kind of very like complicated woman, I guess, declining or ascending, depending on your interpretation. (laughs) Dear God, your presence graces the air and soon everyone will see you. Hi, you Maud? Yes, hi. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, That's quite something. Bless Amanda's body and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. When you 
pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. That's a good shout. Yeah, I mean, we love St. Maud, obviously on Girls on Film. Any more, Clarice, that spring to mind for you? Well, stylistically, I mean, the plots are very different and the tone is different, but the use of the pink and blue just immediately made me think of Suspiria. And I think there's quite a few references to like Argento and and Lucio Fulci and all those like lovely Italian horrors. I can't believe I called them lovely because they are quite gory. You're both clearly horror fans and you're both critics. Where do you feel that horror is going both from a feminist perspective in terms of content, but also in terms of the women behind the camera. Clarice, let me start with you. I am so excited with the direction that horror is going into. I mean, I, I haven't seen the remake of, of Candyman yet, but Nia DaCosta, like having a woman behind the camera of such a high concept, big budget movie like this new Candyman is just it's exciting. And then to have stuff like Censor and, and St. Maud, these sort of more, these more personal vid- visions, but that have the mileage that they do. And I mean, St. Maud did brilliantly last year and it's exciting to see people get excited about female-led horror. I mean, I'm excited for all of those people that Clarice mentioned, but I'm also really enjoying like some of the kind of feminist reappraisals that are going on of films that have already come out. Like I really love that Jennifer's body has gotten its due in recent years. And, you know, and we're kind of re-examining things and looking at like the agency of different people and, you know, discussing whether or not I Spit on Your Grave can be considered a feminist film. And you know, I recently uh, watched The Witch Who Came From the Sea, and I just think that's an incredible feminist vision, even though that's from the 70s. So, yeah, so kind of looking forward to stuff, but also looking backwards and enjoying it through a whole new lens. And I feel like Censor is one that is going to be enjoyed for many years to come. Would you agree, Clarice? It, feel, it feels the cult feels, feels right to describe it. Yeah, and, and I feel like in several years to come, we're going to look back at whatever this period in film is as a, a sort of glory period for horror because I look I hate the high concept horror term because I feel like it's so derogatory to other horror (laughs) elevated horror or whatever (laughs) yeah elevated horror um but I do think that there's something really exciting happening in the genre at the moment where people are being allowed to to push the boundaries and to really explore psychological concepts in whatever way they want to and and for those movies to be popular as well. So I think Censor is going to kind of come in a package with a lot of stuff that's come out recently, like St. Maud, like Midsummer, and people are going to go look back and say, wow, what a what an interesting turning point for this sort of mainstreamification of a very, I don't know, it, I feel like every way of describing horror at the moment feels derogatory. <laughs> But this very sort of like intellectual exploratory type of horror. It is weird. I was thinking about this with Candyman the other day that like I was, a you know, I've been a horror fan for years. When I was in university, there was this real fashion of like remaking old horror films, but just making them like way more unpleasant. Like, you know, like, oh, let's make Halloween and let's make Texas Chainsaw Massacre and just insert like way more violence and sexual violence and stuff and then I completely in many ways miss the point of those original films and it's like I love that now we're having those kind of remakes a bit with like Halloween or with Candyman where it's just like oh no we're just gonna remake them with like a feminist lens or like you know Candyman looking at like oh it's all gonna be black lens rather than looking at white saviors like we're coming with like more ideas to our horror which um I think is 
awesome because Rob Zombie's Halloween was trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and looking back at those classics and saying, wait, why were they so popular? Oh, they had these underpinnings in them. They just need new filmmakers either to bring them out by remaking them, which is one option, or in their own work by making us sort of, as you said, like, look, look back and reappraise everything that's come before. Well, I, f- I, I can feel, listening to what you're both saying, I can imagine Prano Bailey Bond being handpicked to do exactly that in the future on a classic horror, and I would love to see her feminist take on that. Before I, I let you go, can I have from both of you, who you would recommend Sensor to and why? Starting with you, Layla. I would recommend Sensor to my parents because they are of the generation that still think that there's something a bit wrong with you if you're really into horror. And I've had many conversations with them where they're just like, why would you watch these films? And I'm like, but you watch war films. So why is why is that okay? Uh, so yes, I would like to convert some people into convincing them that we are not we are not weirdos for loving films like this one. I love that. Clarice? That's quite noble. I would absolutely not show this to my dad because he'd turn it off 10 minutes in going, that was weird. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I will be boring and I will just recommend this to to horror fans, but particularly female horror fans, because it's going to speak to you in a really interesting way and you will get obsessed with it. I'm very sorry. Warning in advance. <laughs> you will need to watch it several times. Yeah. No, Sensor is, yeah. I'm so glad that you both came on to talk about this because both your perspectives on horror are really valuable, especially from a feminist perspective. And thank you both so much once again for joining Girls on Film. Absolute pleasure as thank always. Thank you. That was Leila Latif and Clarice Lochry. My next guest is Sensor's debut director, Prano Bailey Bond, and its star, Neve Alga. Hi to you both. How are you? Great. Good, good. Well, congrats on the film. I'm so pleased you can join Girls on Film, the feminist podcast. We're so happy to have you. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Oh. Thanks for having us. Well, this this film is right up our street, so I'll get stuck in. I mean, I remember the video Nasty Boom in the 80s and the sort of surrounding panic. And I'm obviously also really ex- interested in exploring gender on screens. So this ticks a lot of boxes for me, this film. Prano, can you tell us how the idea originally came to you? Yeah, I started writing the film in 2016, but I actually had the idea for the film in in 2012 so it kind of you know the seed was sort of growing for quite a while before I got stuck into the script and and the first sort of I suppose thought that came to mind was uh, I was reading this article and actually it was referencing the Hammer Horror era and and there weren't many rules during that period in terms of what censors would cut from films but one of the only rules was they would cut blood on the breast of a woman, the sight of blood on the breast of a woman, because they believed that it would make men likely to commit rape. And I was just really intrigued by this um, idea and sort of started to think about how a lot of the censors during that period were probably men. And I guess it, it just started to get me into the the idea of a film censor who perhaps believed so much in censorship that they started to have a a strange relationship themselves with the imagery that they were seeing and start to doubt their own morals. Then I started researching censors and censorship throughout the ages and quickly landed in the video nasty era. It's fascinating era and it's so weird actually that we haven't seen much on that 
before now. Um, Neve, tell me, I mean, you're, first of all, congratulations on your amazing performance and your, your character goes through a lot, which we'll come to later. But what attracted you to the script? Why did you want to be a part of this? Prano attracted me to the script. I met her at the Screen International Screen Stars tomorrow. We were sat at the same table. Me, me and Prano ended up sitting together because everyone wanted to sit beside Michael Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> That table was rammed, wasn't it? That table was rammed. So me and Vanna were on this other table. And so I got a casting notice in for my agent to tape for a censor back in 2018, I'm going to say, Prana. Was that right? Mm -hmm. Around then, yeah. Yeah. And read the script and just was blown away by just how unique and amazing this, the the story was. And it was, as, as you said, I'd never, I'd never seen a film that explores video nasties and I never also read a character that was so complex and unusual and where she goes from the beginning to end is this incredible journey so it was for me it was just the, the story and knowing that Prano was going to be directing this. Well, on Girls on Film, we're often sort of railing against this term strong female lead and we're, we're kind of more keen on complex and she definitely is that. Um, I'd love to hear from you both a little bit without spoilers, which is a bit tricky, but why you believe in this character and find her so interesting from a gender perspective, because personally I think she's refreshing on a lot of levels. Prano? Yeah, I mean, when we were kind of writing and developing the, the project, I'd sort of often talk about Enid in that she was maybe a character that we don't often see in horror films in terms of where she goes. And like you say, I'm avoiding spoilers. But for me, when I was creating Enid, I was really trying to um, create a character who embodied a lot of what I thought was going on in this era and embodied this idea of censorship. Um, so she's a very self-censored character. She's not very open, you know. Yeah, so I guess those were kind of aspects that I was trying to kind of bring through in the character, you know. And Neve, I mean, what did you, what kind of conversations did you have with Prano about that character and how did you develop it together? God, we had so much conversations to myself and Prano together. I was away filming in, in a different country. So a lot of our conversations were through Skype and we, she sent me like an enormous watch list of films to to watch tonally to kind of figure out almost like Enid's language. And, but what I was, what intrigued me so much is that when you go to kind of research a character like this is that you can't, what I was so excited about is because there wasn't anyone or anything that you could really compare this character to, especially not a, another female character. There was a lot of like, there's so many male characters that are kind of given this opportunity where they're not being defined by the romantic counterpart in the story. There's no, she's not being defined by a man in the story, nor is she on a, a quest to find romance. It's, it, for me, it was, the, the heart of it was this character literally just trying to reconnect with her sister, which I just really loved. And I thought that that was such, there was so much strength in that. And so there's this dichotomy of this character who is incredibly strong and driven but also massively vulnerable at the same time and to to juggle those two things was just fascinating you know if someone did take it then there's still out there you've never been clear on exactly what you remember 
You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. It is very refreshing and in the horror genre as well. I mean, Prano, let's move from that to the male characters briefly and what they say about gender, because I thought there were some terrific scenes early on when we establish how much she's being underestimated and kind of patronised by her male colleagues. Really subtle, also very funny, really well done. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, everyday sexism is very much sort of in the film I actually get asked about that a lot and I I often well it's it's part of life as a woman I think that's you know there's something quite kind of familiar I think to to most women in terms of of that and and I always wanted there to be a little bit of a quip in terms of the way Enid dealt with those comments from men that she kind of deals with it through sort of quite a dry sense of humour um so so that was that was fun. And in terms of censorship, it seems to me that this feels more relevant than ever in a kind of converse way because one on the one hand, you had the video Nazi situation and, and the panic in the 80s, but now it feels like it's almost going the opposite way with cancel culture and that you've got people having moral panic from the other side. Prana, was that on your mind when you were writing this and how did you sort of tackle the current kind of panic about the way people respond to what they see on screen? Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously very, very much um, kind of set in this era, but these kinds of things do come up because you can start to see where the conversations align with kind of what's going on, you know, today and in a contemporary sense. I do remember when I was writing Doug Smart, Doug Smart answers his the doorbell uh, in a dressing gown in this, and it was pre-Weinstein. And I remember then the everything happening around Weinstein and all these stories of him being in dressing gowns. And I was like, everybody's going to think I based him on, on, you know, that I based this character on these stories. And it, it wasn't. So that was just this strange kind of, you know, strange sort of connection. But it's it's something different going on today. And I think that, yeah, there's there could be another version of censor that's made now, which would be almost like the flip side morally, that could be quite an interesting film. Doug Smart, producer, ident investment films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. There's this actress. Feeling that's Nina, my sister. I would love to see you do that. Um, of course, it's Doug is played by Michael Smiley, and Neve, your scenes with him are terrific. He, you're both very, very funny and sort of opposite to each other and really bounce off each other. Talk to me a bit about filming with him. Oh, filming with Michael, he's hilarious. He's a funny man. Like before going into a take, he would, he's. Obviously, he's complete polar opposite of his character of Doug. So, um, you know, he kind of ad lib going in and out of the take, which, like, I think a lot of not a lot of it, but some of the stuff. I know if I'm wrong, kind of made it in there, yeah, just yeah. walking away after he's talked to Enid for the first time, and he's like, "Ooh," <laughs> you know. <laughs> but he's, you know, I I grew like I'm, I'm I was a massive Michael Smiley fan, and on our first, I think it was like first or second day, he said, "You know, acting it's it's about commitment and." embracement and you just you have to commit and embrace and especially with a film like this you just commit to the journey that she goes on and if you do that the the audience will just embrace this character and 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 follow her along the way and so he was it was so so 
I don't know, I was very blessed that we had such an amazing cast on this that were so generous and kind. Bruno, is there anyone else in the team that you want to give a shout out to? I mean, that's a tough question because everyone obviously is at the top of their game in this, but I, I mean, the music, the costumes, I mean, the cinematography, all tremendous. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, like you say, it's quite hard to pick one. HOD, I'd feel mean, but we had such a great team. I mean, Annika Summerson, the cinematographer, is a uh, a long time friend and collaborator. We've worked on a lot of shorts and music videos together. And what she did here, we shot on 35 millimeter. Well, it was actually a combination of 35 mil digital. We did some Super 8. We've got one shot on an iPhone, but we had a lot of fun actually talking about the kind of color journey of the character and referencing some of the video nasties and creating this world visually, but you can't, just talk about the cinematography when you're talking about creating the world because you have the incredible production design by Paulina Zizhazoska and our costume designer Saffron Klein and we we really worked so closely all four of us in terms of creating the world and being obsessed by Enid's journey through that world and how we kind of wove elements you know and techniques through the film so I kind of I'm cheating there shouting out to all of them and then I'd like to say Emily Lebanese Farouche as well for her incredible score it is it seems quite female dominated obviously some terrific men working on this film but Prano is it important for you to work with women especially on a film like this that centers around women and, and deals with gender well, actually, I mean, when I was collecting up my top trumps, I call them, my my HODs, I wasn't thinking about gender in terms of hiring. I was thinking about who would be the best person for the job. It just happened to be that, that a lot of those people were, were women. And like you say, there are some really amazing, um, skilled, talented men who worked on the film as well, like Mark Towns, our editor, and our sound designer, Tim Harrison. But representation is hugely important absolutely because there aren't enough women in specifically roles such as cinematography and composing you know it's really underrepresented so I do think we as kind of people who hire other people need to be conscious about who we're hiring and making sure that we are looking beyond the obvious choices and being as diverse as possible. Neve, how do you feel about the representation side of things when you are taking roles in films? Do you think about who's making it, who's behind the camera, and of course, how women and minorities are represented? It's interesting because it was when I got sent the kind of call sheet of who was the, the crew on on Censor, I was like, oh my God, there's so many women. Is this on purpose? Is it all, you know, is it all women? Because is there a reason behind it? And I and Prano, that was the thing she said to me. It was like, no, these are all the people who were the best at their jobs. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's, that's the answer, exactly. But I think that we are going in through a, into a new era now of, we are aware, we are fully more aware of how women are being represented on screen. And like I said about them not just being the female character in it that is driving the male character forward in the narrative. They're not being defined by the male counterpart in the in the story they actually have they actually have their own purpose and so i think that that is a conversation that has opened up and we're slowly beginning to see i suppose new new characters and new new ways of telling those stories and women aren't just they're not it's not just women who they end their stories in their 20s it's like oh believe it or not people continue on into their 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s and stories are just equally as interesting 
just because a woman gets older does not mean that's the end of their story. Amen to that. That's why we exist here on Girls on Film, so I'm glad you agree. No one's going to pick this up and think it's a documentary. It's so fake. To you, it might be sausages for intestines, but what if it gets into the hands of children? Exactly. Kids could be rewinding and watching those scenes over and over again. Which is exactly what new government guidelines are pointing at. Video technology More is changing guidelines. the rules. guidelines. Great. Not as if we haven't got enough on our hands. How can we do our job properly if we're constantly bogged down by government bureaucracy? It's the nation's sanity they're worried about. Why don't they stop slashing social services? OK, I get it. But I'm afraid... We're not here to debate the government. Can we get back on track, please? Consensus on cannibal carnage. Reject. I agree. Few cuts. I'd pass it. Trying I'm interested to talk a little bit more about the censorship aspect and what kind of research you and Neve did and the rest of the team. Did you speak to the BBFC, for example? Yeah, actually, that was one of the first places me and my co-writer, Anthony Fletcher, went. So quite early on in the writing process, we got in touch and we were like, would you would you be up for chatting? And they're a lot more open nowadays than they were during uh, this particular period. So we went in and spoke to them about how they work today and what they knew about how the BBFC worked during this period. Um, they also let us look at some of their kind of historical documents. So we went through some of the files for films such as, you know, Last House on the Left and Driller Killer and Cannibal Holocaust and all of these titles. So we were able to kind of have a look at the kind of language that the examiners, the censors were using during this period. And even though they only had their initials on the comments, you started to see the different personalities of the censors coming through. And then through talking to more and more people, I managed to get hold of a few female censors who worked during the period. And one of those was a woman called Carol Topolsky, who She's just such an intelligent and fascinating woman and she was really generous uh, in terms of talking to me about her views on horror, how they worked during this period. And then also when we got Neve on board, I put Neve and, and Carol in touch so that Neve could kind of speak to somebody directly about, about the role in the period. How was that, Neve? the conversations you had with her? She's fascinating. Like, as, as Pano says, Carol is a fascinating person and character. So just as, like, my understanding of censorship, I just imagined it's just a building that certifies films and you kind of forget, no, there's individuals that actually have to sit in dark, dark screening rooms all day watching, watching content. And I suppose where I found it the most interesting was the idea of the psychological journey that Enid goes on. And so for me, the research centered around the psychological distortion that this character is, is experiencing and how one could represent that. And I suppose in a light where audiences haven't seen it done before. And so for me, it was researching the psychological narrative the character goes on. Well, it seems like, you know, memory and censorship are very linked here in lots of ways. And there certainly is a suggestion that we censor our own memories and we alter them. Prano, can you talk to me a bit about how you wanted to explore that side of the way that we, we maybe kid ourselves or trick ourselves or block things out? Absolutely. I mean, for me, the title censor isn't just about the censorship of films and art. It's also about self-censorship. And like I said earlier, you know, Enid is a very closed character. So there's that idea within the character of how we all censor ourselves in terms of the things we feel are 
appropriate or acceptable to communicate with other people. And I think everybody does censor themselves to a certain extent. But I also had this idea that I wanted there to be something in Enid's backstory that she couldn't quite grasp, but that she couldn't remember. And this idea that, you know, sometimes our brains you know, censor traumatic memories for us because perhaps at that time we're not able to cope. And so during the writing process, I was trying to find what that was. And and eventually it, it became the story of the day her sister disappeared and, and her not being able to fully remember what happened. And that worked really nicely for me in terms of other things I wanted to explore in the film, like, you know, the blurred line between fiction and reality or that relationship between fiction and reality, because... I think when we can't remember something that happened, we start to fill in the gap with fiction, with our imagination. So that's what Enid starts to do through the film is like, I guess I had this like nightmarish idea of like, what if you had a gap in your memory and you filled that gap with something horrible from a, from a horror film, you know? And, and, and so it all kind of started to, you know, make sense and come together in that sense as well. Did you want to speak to that a bit from your side, from the performance side, Neve? Yeah, like as Parano said, it's it's finding it's finding the bits that she fictionalized, and the trauma for for Enid is not being able to remember what happened to her sister. And so we had a lot of conversations around the idea: is the reason why she can't remember is because she saw something, or is it because she's responsible for it? And so what I love so much about the script is that. Prana doesn't hammer home any given idea and it's left very much in the hands of the characters and for the audience to interpret for themselves. But I think that it's not it's not doing that thing where it's like trying to be vague enough. So it's like, oh, let's leave it up to you guys. It's there's all these really fascinating. Like I can't wait to watch it in a cinema on the big screen, because when you're given an opportunity where it's you get to inject so many of these complex layers about how do you hint to audiences what it is that Enid is is going on because for so much of it it's you know she you're she's in every single frame so be to be given the opportunity to play a character where she sometimes doesn't know what even know what she's thinking and the the camera is like right up here and you can kind of see the the clogs working is the idea that we we were in, able to like inject all these kind of ideas of like with the glasses that they come off whenever it is that she's looking at something that she can't bear to look at and and so I don't know I just it's it, the 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 research into repressed memories and especially childhood drama was a really fascinating study for for me as an actor to to go into because it's so much can, you know, as a child, like a trauma can affect you in, into your adulthood and how that manifests. And for Enid, it's, it's, it's clearly something that is so deeply rooted that she can't kind of progress from there. And we see that, we just see those inner conflicts throughout this film. There's so much to provoke thought in this film, but it is also um, very entertaining. Bravo to you all on that. I'd like to sort of start wrapping up by asking about the fun stuff to film. I mean, there's there's a bit of gore in here. Was there anything that was fun or any mishaps or accidents or crazy stuff happening on set? Prano, let's start with you. Oh, there's lots of fun stuff. I mean, the thing is, 
I don't know what this says about me. <laughs> the scenes that I enjoyed filming the most were probably the ones where Enid's having the worst time. <laughs> so I remember being on set when, and I think that's also down to Neve's amazing performance because I was just so mesmerised, even, you know, on the set, just so emotionally drawn in by Neve's kind of really captivating performance. You know, the, the scenes I enjoyed shooting the most were probably when, when Enid's watching Don't Go in the Church, that was one. And that, that's a very horrible scene for Enid. And also a later scene in the ravine when, when um, she's, she meets somebody. <laughs> and poor Neve and Sophia, the porter, were in the mud, literally just lying in mud <laughs> um, on the forest floor. And I was just enjoying it so much behind the monitor. I mean, I actually ended up having to get a hood for the monitor so that the crew couldn't see my face because I get so involved in what's happening on screen I start to do what the actors are doing with my face um yeah I saw a few kind of photos and videos that some of the crew had secretly got of me it's a part where she's like watching Andrew Havel's character it's in the last like 10 minutes but there's a video of like as the take is taking place, Prano, it cuts to Prano, like literally behind the monitor, going through all the exact same motions, but like kind of tenfold. It's, it's, that is, I would just wanted them to release like the behind the scenes on this. I would love it if you could share that. We could put it on social media because I would really like to see that. Oh, I just don't know if I'm ready <laughs> for people to see my face look like that. It's really quite disturbing. <laughs> I love that you get involved. And you were saying earlier, you know, about this being on a big screen. I personally can't wait to sit on a big screen because it does feel like a real audience film. What are your hopes for it when it when it hits cinemas in terms of the, the community experience of watching a, such a dramatic and exciting horror together? Oh, well, I, I was lucky enough to see it for the first time with an audience recently at the BFI's Woman with a Movie Camera um, programme. And it was absolutely wonderful seeing it with an audience and the laughter and the jumps in the room just they were so I don't know that as a filmmaker that's just so rewarding and I was really listening in for like which lines got the biggest laughs and I think you know there's something about the sense of humour of this film which is quite British and I'm I think that watching watching it with a British audience was just like great and I can't wait to see it more with with people but but the sound design and the image we we made it for the cinema so I just really hope that you know we're an independent film I just really hope that people are going to go out and see it when it comes out brilliant well thank you both so much we'll urge the listeners to do so and thank you so much for joining girls on film festival up with the release thanks Anna. Anna. I was wondering if you had anything else on this actress what's going to happen to her that's top secret. People think that I create horror. Horror is already out there in all of us. That was Prano Bailey Bond and Neve Alga. Sensor is released in UK cinemas on August the 20th, 2021. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film and thanks to our friends at Primetime for supporting the film Sensor. 
If you'd like to join Primetime's global network of women in film and TV production, including BAFTA, Emmy and Oscar winners, you can sign up for free now at primetime.network. They've got a host of interactive new features, so now's a good time to join the club. In other film news, this year's Edinburgh International Film Festival has a fantastic programme. It's 50% female-directed hurrah. Check out festival-fresh movies like Prince of Mark, Ninja Baby and The Man Who Sold His Skin in Edinburgh and at home from the 18th to the 25th of August 2021. Big thanks to our lovely patrons for supporting us on patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast. Shout out to Sophie Files, Philip DeSemlian, Claire Vaughan and Jessica Phillips. If you'd like to join them, go to the site and you can also see some new video content. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Heather Archbold, audio producer Emma Butt, assistant producers Heather Dempsey and Eliana J, and our partners for this episode, Vertigo Releasing. I've been Anna Smith and I was joined by Neve Alger, Prano Bailey Bond, Clarice Lochry, and Leila Latif. Thank you, listeners. Stay safe. Someone's losing the plot.